This is new classical tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. During the pandemic, the members of Sybarite 5 decided to kind of reassess the ensemble. A couple of members had left. They had other things they decided they wanted to do. So they brought on board three new members with the ensemble. Two of those members, along with the founding member, bassist Louis Levitt, talked with me recently about what they discovered when they analyzed the future of this quintet. Well, just a hint, they discovered what they were doing was pretty cool. And what they've done is put together a new recording with new commissions. It's called Collective Wisdom. That's what we hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mucker. I'm going to just start off by having Lewis give us a little background on Sybarite 5. And Lewis, you are the founding member or one of the founding members of this ensemble. Tell me a little bit about how it came together for people who might just be discovering you. Geez, there are so many different ways that this, this ensemble has come together over the years. I think that a lot of the roots of the ensemble got started at the Aspen Music Festival when we were all students and we were performing outside as you did in Aspen during the summer to make a little extra money. And we had a quite a good group. And uh, one, one day uh, someone called me on the phone and said, hey, this is XYZ from the Aspen Music Festival. Um, David Finkel and Wuhan are going to play a concert, but David's hurt his arm, so he can't play. Would you guys like to play? And I thought that it was a joke. I thought it was like a a crank call. So I hung up. I said, that's really funny. And I hung up. 15 seconds later, they called again. I said, no, really, this is the music festival. Um, we would like to know if you could perform a terror music concert with uh, Sybarite 5. And of course, uh, backpedaled very quickly. Um, <laughs> and we ended up uh, performing our first terror music concert inside, indoors, which was a really cool thing for us. So that might be a little insight into how the group got started. And one of the reasons why I think we kind of have a kind of a carte blanche um, attitude about the music we're performing and uh, how we play. Well, tell me, what are Sybarites? So, I mean, I think we're we're constantly redefining that <laughs> as we speak. But um, the reason why we chose that name was because uh, it was it was based on Greek mythology from the town of Sybaris, where all of their the people who lived there were very kind of wealthy, like when we were in Aspen. But they also charmed their enemies by playing music. Interesting. So you have just released a new recording, and it's your first recording in five years. What's been happening over the last five years? Well, during the pandemic, I'm proud to say that we released an album um, that was all live recordings. And uh, that was scheduled to be to be out in March of 2020. And uh, we decided to delay it uh, a couple months to let the pandemic pass over because we thought we would just be, you know, quarantined for a couple weeks. So we thought for sure, 
let's just delay this until May and we'll be on the safe side of things for our new album release. I'm sure we can do a concert around then. Well, fast forward a couple years, I guess that didn't really happen, but we still released the album, which I'm very proud of. And um, it turns out that it was it was actually quite good timing because that was the best type of thing to release during that time. Since then, over the pandemic, uh, some some members of the ensemble changed. People moved different places, decided to do different things. And we decided to take that as a moment to step back and kind of reevaluate Sybarite 5 and think about what different directions we could go in. And we went through kind of a really interesting process where we even thought about, hey, maybe what we should do is like be looking into different instruments or perhaps um, singers or percussionists or all these different, or composers to join our ensemble. And it, it turns out that the five string players, two violins, viola, cello, and double bass works out just fine. <laughs> and and that ended up being the, the cool part of the process is that we kind of rediscovered what a cool thing our ensemble was. And in having the new members join, we've opened up some really interesting possibilities and I guess pathways and gateways that just were not possible before. And I think that this album is a really good expression of that because we're taking the group in different directions and other things that, you know, Laura, Shaley and Sully are bringing to the table are really exciting things uh, to do collaboratively and artistically. I'm going to have you tell me more about that after we meet two of the three new members because they've joined us for this conversation. Laura Andrade, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your instrument, and how you came to Sybarite 5. Hi. Um, I guess I've been in the group for about a year now, but I play the cello. I'm originally from Austin, Texas, and um, I should mention that growing up in Austin is like, it's such a wonderfully vibrant um, music town. And um, being classically trained, I was also exposed to many other different um, genres of music and contemporary classical music. And I think that environment was really essential for me in growing into the musician I am today. And so I came across Sybarite 5. Um, well, I, I had heard of Sybarite 5 uh, being based in the city. Everybody knows who Sybarite 5 is. Um, <laughs> and I love everything that the the group does innovatively and creatively and the group really sets itself apart um, artistically from many other ensembles in the city and so I had gotten a text message from Lewis more than a year ago asking if I could um, join for a little tour I was unavailable <laughs> but um, he was insistent and we set up a, an interview and um, a time for me to to read with the group and it didn't really feel like an audition process. It just felt like, you know, joining them and having a good time. And uh, they surprised me and accepting me into the group. <laughs> I guess I don't know what you'd call it, but um, they had set up like a whole a video camera crew in the apartment um, where I was supposed to come in and read with them again. But it ended up just being a huge announcement that they they um, want me to join the group. And I was just really, really excited. and. I'm 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 honored and um, I I feel at home in this this formation and it's been it's been really beautiful. Lewis, how did you know to reach out to Laura? What was your connection to Laura initially? I think that 
you know, the reason why we reached out to Laura was that, you know, we talk collaboratively a lot about what artistic directions the group wants to go in. And when it comes time to discuss, you know, membership, um, everybody in the group had different things that they wanted to bring to the table. So Laura's um, skills really seemed to be a natural fit. And it was it was something that was clear when we started working together. And it was really done with the kind of, I think the guidance of my colleagues, you know, Chaley and Sully, um, cause they were really a huge part of the discovery process when we were looking for uh, cellists. And we had, I mean, we had our pick, I would say that we had amazing people that wanted to play with us. And um, it was really wonderful for us to find Laura because she's been such a great uh, colleague and a great asset to our group. Chaley Smith, you're the newest, a new member as well. You play viola with the group. How did you come to be part of this ensemble? So uh, let's see. I also had been a longtime fan of Sybarite 5 for many years. The group kind of occupies this niche of chamber music or chamber music-ish groups in the city that um, are always doing something really really interesting and a little different. Um, and I've been in the group for about a year and a half. So I joined shortly before Laura and shortly after Sully, Solomon Takali, one of our violinists. Um, I got a text message from Sully. So as you can hear, like we have this sort of network, uh, this web of, um, artists in, in New York and, um, and beyond that, um, have worked with each other for a long time and different iterations and know each other and kind of know, different priorities or um, values that each other have. And it kind of draws us to each other. So I got a text from Sully asking if I was available to join the group for a few concerts and also potentially be uh, considered to join after those concerts finished. So I was very excited about it. And I met Lewis on Zoom and chatted about, you know, kind of goals and dreams in general and what I'd want to bring to a group and what I'd look for in a group. And the moment that I started rehearsing with the group in Lewis's apartment, uh, in the Bronx, I was just having so much fun. I mean, all of us are classically trained and I think, you know, come up through really specific, um, institutions and, and get trained in certain ways that are great. Um, and then for me, the chance to play in a group like Sabrite Five is a chance to acknowledge and explore a side of myself artistically and musically that like I didn't really ever um, get to nourish or nurture as a kid, at least not in ways that were like accepted or encouraged by my classical music um, upbringing. So I'm like, I, I grew up in Philly. Laura said she grew up in Austin and there's so much great music happening in both those cities. But I definitely feel like playing in Sabrade 5 as a you know, an adult gives me a chance to explore a part of myself and a part of the musical world that I love that I don't actually get an opportunity in other parts of uh, my musical life. So um, it's great fun to play with the group. As soon as I was rehearsing, I was so excited about it. And um, yeah, it's been great. It's been so wonderful since then. I uh, recently was talking to somebody about their work and they made the comment that my work is play. And it, make, it makes me think of you all because you've kind of indicated that that is what your work is with this ensemble. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I would, I would say that that's pretty accurate. And I would say that I think that the time during the pandemic actually gave us a chance to rediscover that. Because for a long time, work was work. And uh, the group had been through a lot of things 
I'm, and great things, you know, like winning international competitions and going on tour and all this stuff. But we were, it was a job. We were working, working. And I think that we might have lost touch with some of the reasons why we started doing this, you know, and that was, you know, in a lot of ways to have fun. And I think that I, I can speak for everyone when saying like that's definitely a key component to our performances and our ability to interact and make music together. If we're not doing, if that's not happening, if we're not playing the music that we love, then there really isn't any point to doing it because um, it's not an easy job. And talking <laughs> about um, doing what you love, I know one of the things that you love doing is performing new music and you have a commitment to new music. And we're hearing that again on your latest recording, Collective Wisdom. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why, I'm also curious why collective wisdom, I mean, I, I can guess why it's called that, but why did you choose that for the title of this recording? Yeah, so um, I think that's a pretty great question to ask. And the answer to that is really organic in that when we first got started, there really wasn't any music written for a string quintet, meaning two violins, viola, cello, bass. I know it sounds just like quartet, but for a lot of people listening, they need to know that we have a big difference in that is that there's a double bass. Therefore... Um, there is almost no repertoire written for us by classical composers. There are two pieces that I can think of off the top of my head that are well-known, a Dvorak quintet and a set of Mozart divertimenti. And those are great pieces, but that does not make uh, a career or a, the ability for an ensemble to exist. We don't have Beethoven quartets and Bartok or Shostakovich or any of that. So at the beginning, we realized that if we were going to have this career and decide to pursue this, we were going to need to work to expand the repertoire for string quintet with double bass. And that meant we were going to be working with composers and commissioning new works. Lucky for us, during that time, we were students and we were friends with a lot of composer students. So, you know, most composers want their music to be performed and we played a lot of concerts. So um, composers really like to have their music performed and then performed again. So uh, I reached out to friends that I thought were writing really cool music at the time. I said, hey, would you write a three to five minute piece for for my group? And sure enough, we did. We did that. And we had great pieces from Dan Visconti or Piotr Sevchek that were all essentially, I guess you could say, student compositions at the time. But all these people have gone on to have major composition Careers. I mean, including Jessica Meyer, for example, who was on our new album and was on our last album. Um, so the commissioning process and doing developing new music has been kind of essential and organic to how we've operated. And um, it's always something that is kind of collaborative and exciting for us. And as far as the name of the album, Collective Wisdom, um, right after we won the Concert Artist Guild competition, there was a prize given to us as part of that from BMI Foundation and Concert Artists Guild, and that was to commission a new work from a young emerging composer. And we chose Michael Gilbertson at the time. And if you don't know Michael Gilbertson's music, you really should, because um, it's absolutely fantastic. And he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist a few years ago as well. Uh, the piece he wrote for us was called Collective Wisdom. And uh, we wanted to honor that uh, because it only took us 10 years to record the piece uh, <laughs> with the name of the, the title of, of the album. And uh, the, the work is in some ways so challenging, but so rewarding. And that's how I feel the process of making this album has been. Let's dive into the pieces on the recording. Why don't we start with that title track 
and talk a little bit about what we hear because it starts off with this kind of snap. And where does it go from there? The piece, Collective Wisdom, I love what Lewis just said about it is so dang hard, but it is when it comes together, um, I think for a listener and for a performer, it is really gratifying. It's sort of like these shocks of lightning that are coming from different corners of the sky. The snap pizzicati that you just alluded to, which are very kind of striking and kind of make you sit up and ask what's next. There's like a flurry of, I want to say unison because we're playing together, but of course it's very dissonant, um, you know, on the string, arco kind of um, scurrying motions and interlocking rhythms. And it's sort of a perpetual motion, like it kind of just goes and goes and explores different timbres and, uh, you know, so many different sounds and ways of making sounds on the instrument um, and kind of builds into just like finishing as strongly as it started. So that kind of helps uh, one maybe understand how, why we say it's so challenging. And it sort of requires this incredible alertness and precision from all of us at all times, which is really fun actually when we can pull it off. So, yeah, lightning is what comes to my, my mind when I think of electricity kind of buzzing. I w- would love to add, sorry, this is Laura speaking. Um, <laughs> I love what Chaley was saying about it being really fun and kind of electric um, in the piece itself. But the process of putting that piece together is actually very gratifying because it's so rhythmically complex and we have to be super laser focused the whole time. Um, I think the rehearsals we had in putting that piece in particular together were the most focused and the most intense and kind of going back to our fundamentals of um, ensemble playing and really listening and um, being able to rely on each other. And so I I think that piece in particular is is very much um, foundational to our, our uh, virtuosity and our abilities as an ensemble. I absolutely agree with what Laura and uh, Chaley said. And, you know, after playing music for a while and been in a bunch of different orchestras and, you know, played a lot of different chamber music over the years, I don't think there's a piece that's more difficult or challenging than um, in any repertoire that I've performed. And um, I'm saying that because it's a real testament to this ensemble. This is not something that we could have done in the past and recorded in the same way because it requires such incredible focus and being in tune with each other, not only in kind of just like a kind of professional musical way where we're playing on time, but also also kind of like in, a, in an emotional way where we're all like doing something together, unified as a group. And it requires like this complete precision. And I'm just so happy that we were able to perform it and record it. And it is a work that's really filled with a lot of different emotions, complicated emotions, according to the composer. So you guys all have to tap into that and try to figure out what's going on where. Yeah, a lot of times when you get a piece that's this difficult, you ask yourself, why did the composer write it like this? 
And we get a lot of difficult pieces, don't get me wrong, after commissioning 137 works or something, a lot of them are really hard. But you always ask yourself, why did they write it like this? Could they have written it an easier way? Is it the writing? What's the purpose of this? Why is this measure 3-8 and 7-8 instead of, you know, how is this working? Um, and I think that's what's really satisfying about this piece is that there is a really great reason why everything is exactly how it is and we're all 100% behind that. Jessica Meyer wrote the piece called Slow Burn, and the viola takes center stage in this piece. And Jessica actually played the viola role in the premiere of the work. Is that right? So what was that like, Chaley, to pick up that role after you heard the composer? Not, you know, she wrote it and she played it. What's that like for you now to step in and play the piece? Having the chance to step into Jessica Meyer's shoes for a day is exhilarating. She is a beloved staple figure of the New York City um, scene as both a dynamo player and composer. And her music is very personal. Like, I think it has a thumbprint. And it's usually, I feel like it's immediately recognizable as a work of Jessica Meyer when you hear it. The the fun fact behind the piece, other than that the composer premiered it with the group, is that it was created, it was composed to be performed the first time with Sabrite Fai and a troupe of burlesque dancers. So that immediately puts something really evocative in your mind and you can hear it in the piece. It's sensual, it has this sort of mystery or this kind of like kind of veiled and then unveiled feeling. It's super fun and when we rehearse and perform it, I am always thinking about dance and that art form of, um, you know, the cabaret or the burlesque dancers. And there's a rock and viola solo, a little cadenza in the middle. the composer's a violist. She's going to stick that in there. And um, it is the most fun thing to kind of grind, grind out on stage. And usually people come up to me after the shows and they're like, I've never heard so many, you know, solos for the viola. And I'm like, yeah, you got it. So anyway, it's, um, it is one of our favorites. It explores many different styles and sounds in just a few minutes. There's a lot packed in there. There are three folk songs right in the middle of this recording that I especially love. I think the the pieces by Comitas are obviously very um, near and dear because our violinist Sami Merdinian is of Armenian um, descent. Um, he has a lot of cultural background, um, but um, <laughs> Armenia is one of them. 
And um, Comitas is a really fascinating um, composer and took these folk songs from Armenia that, I mean, wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for him to collect them and write them down. Uh, the three that we have on this album are Onazan, Spring, and... Um, Onazan Spring, and I'm forgetting the other one. The Red Shawl. The Red Shawl, thank you. There's so many of them. <laughs> It really is interesting to me to perform this music, one, because uh, performing it live on stage with someone from the Armenian heritage is a really incredible experience because we're, we're experiencing something really authentic. And I feel honored and privileged to be able to do that with Sami Merdinian on stage. The other thing that I really have learned to love about these pieces is that much like uh, Bella Bartok, Komitas recorded these by writing them down over the years. And in doing so, he preserved history when, when he did that. And he felt the need to get these down or else they just would be lost to the world. And, you know, we're the only string quintet that I know of uh, right now in existence and meaning with that, that does this work and makes albums. And I feel really similar to that when we make an album or we're doing a world premiere. And if we don't document it and record it and release it, it may never happen. It may never exist. No one else may hear it. Um, so that really resonates with me. Whenever we perform a full set and we have, we usually have comitas somewhere in the middle because it offers a moment of like, of levity, of um, simplicity and um, a type of sound that really um, goes back to something more traditional, more, you know, a simple melody and something that um, emotionally is, is really beautiful and actually time kind of stands still when we perform these works. Well, you lead off with a very energetic piece from the Punch Brothers. So I'm guessing you're big Chris Thiele fans. Tell me about the piece that opens this recording. Who would like to share? I think it's got to be Chaley because she just did a concert with Chris um, with the Knights a couple days ago. Um, yeah, we are huge fans of Chris Seeley and of the Punch Brothers. Chris Seeley especially being one of those musicians who, I don't know, the word genius is almost not enough to describe how we feel about him. But um, the songwriting, the creativity and innovation with rhythm and with different sounds, I mean, this, when you listen to the Punch Brothers, of course, we never thought, oh, we can improve upon this. It was not at all like that. But it's this idea of like, this is such an amazing track. And we could really clearly, you know, kind of hear um, how that might come across on our instruments. It is definitely one of our very favorites to play. It is so groovy. It is so beautiful. There's these singing solos.
beautifully contrasted with this this groovy driving exciting to me it kind of feels like this like inevitable like this wheel is turning or the cycle of time or also slow mo slow mo to me it sounds like something really dramatic happening in slow motion um so we adore this track and uh i think we i think it's first on the album because it's one that we're the most proud of and excited about well, it's called Movement and Location, and Chris Thiele says that it's actually about the retired baseball player Greg Maddox. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think what I would what I would say about that is that you know when I first heard the song, I didn't think that that's what it was about. You know, I thought it was about movement and location. It's like your movement and location over space and time, and this kind of very deep, profound thing. And and then I found out, you know, actually, it's a song about baseball. And, you know, maybe perhaps a pitcher just trying to figure out the proper movement and location for every one of their pitches. But you know what? That resonated with me because that's how I felt about every note that I played and articulated with the bow and just trying to get it to pop just right and be in time. Um, and then, you know, also later I found out that, you know, Chris was also probably thinking about relationships when he wrote it. Um, so it does all make sense. Well, there's just a couple of other pieces we haven't talked about. I'm jumping down to the one that was originally written for Big Band. Uh, This is Laura speaking. Yeah. Um, This is the other... um, Well, Pedro Girardo is a a childhood friend of Sami. Um, uh, Sami grew grew up in Cordoba, Argentina, and um, they knew each other from their high school days when Sami was in high school orchestra, I believe it was, um, with Pedro. I think their friendship and their uh, collaboration together, and and they played lots of tango music um, in the city and and tour together. Um, But yeah, Sami was able to um, have him write this this arrangement for us, and it's definitely one of our favorites to perform. Um, From beginning to end, it's just incredibly captivating and fiery and uh, has a lot of flair in it. Can you tell me the title of the piece, please, Laura? Because I know it translates to mean with a lump in the throat. Yes. Oh, gosh. I can't say it as beautifully as um, as Sami does because he has a, his low, deep, resonant voice. Um, but con un nudo... Would you like me to try like Sami? Yes. <laughs> con un nudo en la... Con un nudo en la garganta. <laughs> Was that good? Well, what we know about this piece is he wrote it during a time of tremendous loss in his life, which is why there's a lump in the throat. Do you want to talk a little bit about the emotional side of this piece? I mean, the... Jeez, I don't, you know, what's interesting is that, like, we're, I'm pretty good friends with Pedro, and uh, he's a bass player. Okay, full disclosure, I'm a bass player, he's a bass player, so we have, like, the unwritten bass player code of knowledge between each other. Um... And, you know, the, the piece is, for me, um, without being derivative in any way, shape, or form, I think it has been influenced by his upbringing in Córdoba, Argentina, and the influence of tango, specifically new tango, and the music of Astro Piazzolla. And I think that if you're from that area, there is, I don't want to say there's no way you can't write music like that, but the music he writes is so beautiful, it's haunting.
And this piece is unique, I think, and it was part of a, a series of works that were recorded and won a Latin Grammy with his big band. And uh, Sami very wisely heard the music and said, you know what, here's like something new for us to do. We've never taken anything that's been written for big band and see how that would translate. But the music is so good. The quality is so good. And the same way with the Punch Brothers with movement location. The quality is such that it's timeless and it translates into almost anything. And I'd be willing to bet that um, if a tuba quartet were to do a recording of either of these two works, that they'd be successful as long as they, you know, were true and honest to the music. We hope to, to play more by, by Pedro, but this is, I think, a, a fun start for us. There is another piece that was originally, at least by the composer Curtis Stewart, he said he first heard it in a Greek jazz fusion setting. Yes, so uh, Mangas is a, is a piece that was inspired by Curtis's mom's band, um, and her name was Electra Curtis. And so he took this piece, Mangas, and he kind of reworked it through his eyes for us. And he's also recorded this on an album for him as a solo violinist um, that he did during the pandemic. He recorded this album, it's called Of Power, and he did it in his, uh, well, he did it in his apartment because that was the studio during the pandemic and uh, released that and was actually nominated for a Grammy and performed at the 64th Grammy Awards as a solo violinist um, as a result of that. And um, I'm pretty good friends with Curtis. If you're getting a, you're getting a like a repetitive story here, it's because we're friends with a lot of composers. And I think that's a key thing just in general, you know, we collaborate with people all the time and I become friendly with Curtis through various different channels um, and uh, said, hey, do you want to do some stuff for us? And here's the stuff that I kind of like that you've done. What do you want? And this is the first one he gave us with Mangas. And the cool thing about this is that we have never recorded a piece in the same way that we recorded Mangas in that there are certain improvised sections that we were able to, to track and um, layer and we used, I guess, geez, would you call it like more rock and roll kind of recording techniques when we did this? And we had the producer have a little bit more creative authority. We were able to improvise. a bunch of weird stuff playing over tracks. I mean, I say weird stuff, but I think it's normal stuff for people who aren't classical musicians. We just think it's weird because like, hey, we're classical musicians. So I guess we did a bunch of normal stuff, but it was the first time we did it. And that's been like really happy for us. Um, we have a video, it will be coming out hopefully shortly on Among Us. And, you know, I think as a result of the recording process, it's 
it's become one of our favorite tracks. And um, that's such a cool surprise. I love it when that kind of happens. That really is exciting. And that brings us then to the final track, which takes us to exploring different apartments. And now this again would be something we wouldn't normally hear in classical music. Who would like to talk about this piece and all the different elements that brings it to life? So I think that apartments is another really interesting one in the sense that it it's a surprise every time we play it. because it's different every single time. So how do you record something like that, right? How do you do something that is in many ways improvised but coordinated and create kind of like an authentic artistic statement that is consistent across the board and then say, hey, we're gonna document this and release this. That in itself, I think, is a challenge. Um, not to mention getting the performance rights from 1010 Winds to include audio footage <laughs> um, from their from their broadcasts. But, um, you know, hats off to Jackson Greenberg for writing this because I think he took a lot of risks, but he also really um, put a lot of trust in the ensemble. And it this piece is, it's funny because I said that the... Um, Michael Gilbertson's piece is difficult to execute, and that's really true. Um, but this piece is, uh, has challenges to execute in a different way because we have to coordinate ourselves without being able to actually keep time in the same sense that you would with Michael Gilbertson's piece. So with Michael Gilbertson's piece, we know if like we're off or we're on, sure. It's, it's cut and dry, it's black and white. You know, Jackson you know, painted with a much different type of brush. So coordinating everything is really, in some ways, the challenge. But when it locks in and you start creating sonorities that you're really happy with, and it works out with the tracks that he created that are essentially like backing tracks. So we perform this piece live, which we'll be doing at Death of Classical on November 29th in New York City. Um, it's, it's hauntingly uh, effective, and it's always something that is talked about after we perform it live. of the instruments represent different people in the apartments. Do you each want to kind of talk about what your role is in this piece? It's Chaley. Um, the structure of apartments is such that there are two pairs of people or figures or voices that cohabitate or are together, isolated but together, and then one person who is alone. So you could think of three kind of pods or units. Obviously this is pandemic inspired. And so, for example, Laura and I cohabitate, and the two violins do, and Lewis, uh, sorry, Lewis, he's on his own. And what that means, um, and the way the sheet music is written, is these kind of beautiful, sighing, calm, but restless at the same time sort of uh, gestures that we are meant to play together in a way that we feel it in the moment. So um, it is has this sort of amorphous quality. You can kind of sense the groups of 
voices moving together, but also sort of in this weird standstill. So that's all to say that, um, you know, it's, it's sort of free and it's something that can only exist in that moment. actually um, got a chance to work with the composer himself and he came to New York to work with us in a rehearsal and um, he also came to um, Sarasota to watch the premiere of it. I think being able to work with him on it and have his ears, um, you know, kind of tell us what our experience should be like while performing it. So it's approaching it at first was actually kind of daunting because on the page it's literally just half notes and little little uh, boxes um, and little cells and it's really difficult to interpret. Um, but because it's different every time and the concept is, is very open, it's, um, it's actually quite a meditative experience for me at least to really hone in in the present and respond and feel and yeah I think it's a great way to close the album in that sense. It's a new recording called Collective Wisdom from the ensemble Sybarite 5. That's new classical tracks from listener-supported American Public Media, with thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks. I'm Julia Macher.